This is an RNZ podcast. This is Media Watch. I'm Colin Peacock. The Christchurch Call is now digging into how social media's secret algorithms work. I think it's very hard to for governments to say that they're going to step in and regulate something that is so poorly understood. But will that undercut extremism on social media platforms that are now preoccupied with each other? Media Watch asks the founder of a forerunner of Twitter who's now seeking to decentralise social media from right here in New Zealand. But can companies with the economic clout of entire countries really be hacked down to size? Also, the ram raids and robberies just keep on coming, and with them, fresh news coverage of claims of a surge, even a tsunami, in youth crime. But the stats don't back it up, and one journalist who actually interviewed young ram raiders said she had her preconceptions shifted. But first, more rancour on the road towards a new public media entity. Good evening. A novelty that could wear off. That's one expert's view as the world's second biggest retailer, Costco, finally opens in New Zealand. Its arrival has been anticipated for months with the promise it'll shake up the grocery sector. That was TVNZ News last Thursday leading, like many other bulletins that day, on Costco opening its doors. And it's a worry for existing retail players, in Auckland at least, because of its scale. And while hundreds of Costco superfans queued up for the bargains in bulk at the new mega retailer, opposition MPs were lining up Broadcasting and Media Minister Willie Jackson the same afternoon in Parliament on the mega merger of RNZ and TVNZ. Can the minister confirm the $370 million merger of RNZ and TVNZ has no regulatory impact statement or cost-benefit analysis? It was National Party Broadcasting spokesperson Melissa Lee, and there she put a $370 million price tag on the new public media entity, which was rejected by Willie Jackson, though it was also used by her leader Christopher Luxon on Morning Report earlier that same day as his go-to example of wasteful government spending. You know, let's just take the Radio New Zealand TVNZ merger, $375 million to merge two entities that don't even have an enterprise value to do that. I mean, that is a, that is a huge amount of wasted money. Now in Parliament later that day, Willie Jackson didn't answer Melissa Lee's question about whether a CBA or RIA had been done on the new PME, so she asked it again. Uh, Mr Speaker, I'll come back to the member on that. I think that deserves even another extra question. Same question. come back to us. And things didn't get any tidier when Willie Jackson told Melissa Lee that he had one in his office he could show her, and she called his bluff, only to be told when she visited that no regulatory impact statement was needed because they'd spent many months creating a specific business case for the new entity. Now, Willie Jackson was also challenged on a comment he made last week before the first select committee hearing into the legislation for the new public media entity when he said TVNZ needed to change its attitude for the transition. We will, uh, we will be clear about we will be clear that we require uh, a change of culture it's not just it's not just it's not just about making money it's about New Zealanders feeling proud knowing who they are we need a different New Zealand voice recognizing Maori Pacifica Asian and other ethnic minorities it's not just about one group anymore And that actually rendered redundant the following patsy question from Willie Jackson's fellow Labour Party MP, Naisi Chen, to which he did have a prepared response. Uh, Supplementary Naisi Chen. Thank you, Mr. Tom. 
So why is it important to invest in public media? <laughs> Mr Speaker, um, for the opposition again, every democracy in the world invests in public media to support their democracies and culture. That's, in the, that's the case with the BBC. That's the case in Ireland, Australia and Canada. We absolutely believe New Zealand does, deserve that too. Now, places like Ireland, Canada, Australia and the UK have long funded their public broadcasting through either a fee paid by households, like we used to have here, or directly from central government coffers, and those broadcasters are then fully accountable for how they spend the money. But here we've had government broadcasting funding agencies like New Zealand On Air allocating taxpayers' money to broadcasters and making decisions about publicly funded content for the past 30 years. Now, late last week, on a Friday ahead of a long weekend, New Zealand On Air emailed media an innocuous-sounding quick update, confirming that the minister had told them more than two weeks earlier that the bulk of its budget will in future go straight to the new public media entity to spend as it sees fit. And that's something the people drafting the 980 submissions on the merger legislation might have wanted to know before the deadline for submissions on September the 8th, the day after the minister's letter to New Zealand on air. I looked at that on this week's Midweek Media Watch with Karen Hay and other developments. And also in Midweek Media Watch, we looked at a radio interview which sparked controversy because of the mockery of a teenager. Don't you care about the climate, Izzy? Of course I care about the climate. Not enough. You went... <laughs> You went to Fiji. <laughs> That's this week's Midweek Media Watch on the Media Watch page of the RNZ website or our section of the RNZ app, or you'll find it in our podcast feed if you missed it. This past week's public media entity developments were not reported by TVNZ News this week, even though it affects them, not to mention their viewers and their online audience. But the arrivals at News Hub at 6 over on TV Channel 3 did mention the New Zealand on-air funding change like this last Wednesday five days after it was made public. The Kiwi producer known for Whale Rider in Shortland Street says the government's decision to siphon off 40 million of NZ on Air's funding will wipe out local production companies. The funding will go to the new mega entity merging TVNZ and RNZ, drastically cutting the funding available for other producers. It was John Barnett, former boss of South Pacific Pictures they were talking about there, who told News Hub this. People are going to lose jobs. Taking away that funding means that neither the new organisation nor New Zealand On Air actually have enough money to make the things that we all watch, the things we grew up with. A number of high-profile producers that we spoke to didn't want to speak on record for fear of falling out of favour with the new media behemoth that'll soon have the lion's share of commissioning funding. But the merger might actually mean more money spent on local factual programmes, comedy and drama from the new public media entity's public funding of $109 million a year until 2026 and the commercial TV revenue ANZPM pulls in. However, with no executives appointed yet and no content strategy, no one knows quite how the new not-for-profit entity will spend its revenue from next year on. And the day after that, last Thursday, the chair of the screen producers lobby group Sparta voiced producers' fears at the second hearing on the public media entity's legislation at Parliament. Irene Gardner, a former TVNZ programme maker and commissioner who was an advisor to the government's public media plans and is also currently on the board of RNZ, told the Economic Development Science and Innovation Committee this. 
our anxiety is not so much about that happening, because in the end, it's still local production money. It doesn't necessarily matter which pocket of the, co- the coat it's in. Our anxiety is that no one is saying to us between what ANZPM have got ring-fenced for local production and between what NZ On Air has for local production, what is that total amount of money is it the same as what it is now? Is it more because there are more public re- media outcomes to realise or is it less? And if it is less, then why are we doing this? But she's far from the only one now asking that question of the government's public media plans. Now, all along, the government has insisted that this new public broadcaster will collaborate with and take account of other media companies. But other media groups told the committee on Thursday they were wary of the beefed-up public broadcaster cutting across their interests. These included the Umbrella Group for Commercial Radio, the Radio Broadcasters Association, and the News Publishers Association, both of whom said the new entity would distort the media market in which they operate. And the government's plan was even lacking backing in Thursday's hearing from those who told the committee they liked the idea but want greater clarity along with greater public funding already pledged. Last Tuesday, there was little further clarity, though, in a strategic framework for a sustainable media system, a document released by the Ministry for Culture and Heritage, which must have been a lot of work to write but isn't much of a frame on which to hang anything. The document speaks of enhancing the role of New Zealand on air to deliver public funding aligned to the overall goals of the strategic framework, though there's no mention anywhere in that document of cutting New Zealand on air's budget in half to fund the new public media entity. Well, there's more to come on all this next week when Parliament's Economic Development Science and Innovation Committee hears more evidence from those who made submissions on the new public media legislation, and that includes the bosses of the two state-owned outfits it will replace, RNZ and TVNZ, and we'll report back on that next week here on Media Watch. Last weekend here on Media Watch, we looked at how the courts and the justice system had been under increased media scrutiny in a special series by RNZ called Is This Justice? and more broadly by the Open Justice Project, which is run by NZME and publicly funded to deploy 15 reporters around the country specifically to cover courts and tribunals. And next week, there'll be more. A new TV series on Prime called A Question of Justice, examining four major justice issues. When Grace Mullane was murdered in an Auckland hotel room, her right to privacy died with her. Details of her sex life were read out in court, while Jesse Kempson, the man accused of killing her, got name suppression for the next two years. All her intimate details are out there in the interest of ensuring that the killer gets a fair trial. Was that fair? And later this month in TVNZ's Tuesday night documentary New Zealand slot, former police detective Tim McKinnell investigates how white-collar crime is often unreported and unpunished, but young people are getting locked into cycles of poverty and crime. Locking up the needy, but letting off the greedy, as the doco puts it, it's called crime, need versus greed. Greed has no upper limit. He built trust. He was building for when he could take down the towers. While society and the media fixate on gang crimes, ram raids and other forms of street crime, white-collar criminals have been robbing us blind. We've seen a 91% increase in scam incidents. Costs estimate half a billion dollars. More than a million dollars a day. A staggering $750 million.
dollars a year. Five to seven billion categories. We're losing billions of dollars a year to crime driven by greed. Most of the time, it's all gone. The police aren't on the 27th floor checking in about embezzlement and insider trading. I worry that we're locking up the needy and ignoring the greedy. It's much easier to go after people for benefit fraud or for shoplifting. White collar crime often is very complicated. White collar crime boys, they don't lose much. Now, back in May, Media Watch's Hayden Donnell looked at how headlines were sparked by a spike in ram raids, painting a picture of youth crime at crisis levels, though the crime stats didn't seem to back that up. Well, now the ram raids and robberies are still in the news, along with headlines highlighting the youth of some involved. But now there are some fresh figures on that, and as Hayden Donnell now reports, also some reporters willing to put it in context. Last week, the New Zealand Herald carried a headline that might have come as a surprise to its regular readers. Despite ram raid rhetoric, youth crime is dropping year on year. The story by Rick Stevens, a journalist for the publicly funded Open Justice Project, points to statistics showing 1,300 young people aged 10 to 17 had charges finalised against them in court in the year to June 30, compared to 1,500 the previous year. Over the longer term, the picture is even more stark. About 5,000 young people went before the courts in 2007 before those numbers went into a long-term decline. These figures would appear to jar with other headlines from the Herald, including this one. Youth crime spike. Unused fingerprint evidence enabling hundreds of young criminals. Or this one. Auckland Youth Crime Wave. New government package launched in response. The presence of a youth crime spike or wave has been taken as a given by many media outlets. One News has also reported a youth crime wave, while News Hub has spoken about rampant youth crime in the North Island and on RNZ, National's Mark Mitchell has raised the spectre of a tsunami of youth crime. These stories have at least some grounding in reality. Youth crime has gone up in Auckland and ram raids in particular have spiked. Police Minister Chris Hipkins says 129 raids have been committed by offenders with a median age of 15 since May. Nationals Justice spokesman Paul Goldsmith has flatly rejected the relatively rosy recent youth crime stats, citing what, quote, everyone is seeing on the ground, which is admittedly a pretty flimsy statistical method, while Justice Minister Kiritapu Allen says COVID lockdowns may have had an impact on the figures. At the very least, though, the headlines asserting a youth crime spike aren't backed up by the hard data we currently have available. The stats don't show a spike in youth crime, let alone a wave, swell or tsunami. In fact, outside of a highly visible headline-generating type of crime, they show the opposite. And it's a credit to Stevens that he has brought to light the ways current reporting may be distorting people's picture of what's actually going on. Perhaps the company that publishes his work could augment some of its headlines accordingly. Stevens isn't the only journalist presenting a perspective that has so far been missing in many of the stories on youth crime. In a new documentary for Today FM titled Behind the Raids, Children at the Wheel, Wilhelmina Shrimpton talks to two teenagers who have carried out ram raids, one 13 and the other 15 years old. Both teenagers explained the allure of ram raiding, with one telling Shrimpton he was taken away from his family by Oranga Tamariki and fell in with a group of young people that carried out smash and grabs as he tried to escape a foster home where he didn't feel like he belonged. 
While much of the media rhetoric in recent months has focused on calls for tough justice to be doled out to lawless youths, Shrimpton gives the teens themselves space to say what they think would fix their situation. Here's the 15-year-old named in the documentary as Toby. I wish, I wish someone like me would help, like, if I was their man, like, I wish they would help me when I was on the struggles, when I was struggling to, like, get through all of this stuff. So you wish you had someone like you to support you? Yeah, hard, because they, like, they would know you, eh? They know how you are. That call for empathy is something of a running theme. This is youth justice lawyer Harvina Sherrington pleading for understanding from audiences who may otherwise only encounter these young people in confronting security camera footage of ram raids being carried out. Kiwis who are watching the news, Kiwis who have no idea about these kids' backgrounds, no idea about what drives them to do this, what would you like them to know and understand about their offending before they're so quick to judge. The challenges that these young people face are often things that we could not comprehend. And that they are making those choices on the basis of those challenges. The doco is a reminder that beneath the headlines about crime waves and tsunamis are real people with real problems, but also hopes for their lives just like anyone else. Here's 13-year-old Cam talking about what he wants to be when he's older. I want to be a doctor when I'm, when I'm older. You want to be? Help. I want to help people. You want to help people? Yeah. That's pretty cool. I don't want to. I don't want to be the person getting my leg cut off. I want to be the person helping him, helping him with his leg. Do you think if you didn't turn your life around, you could have been that other person getting yeah. your leg cut off? A little bit. You don't want to be that. You want to be the one helping them, yeah? Yeah. Yeah. Want to be the one changing their life. Oh, I really want to be a mechanical builder, eh? Yeah. Build people's houses or fix their cars, and Well, that's what I would want to do. So you want to help people? Help people, yeah. This humanising approach seems to soften some people's opinions about how we should respond to these teenagers' actions. One business owner whose shop has been ram-raided multiple times responds like this after being shown a video of one of the teens apologising for his actions. The fact that he said sorry and wanted to say sorry to, to, to the businesses he'd ram-raided, do you, do you believe that? See, as a society, we, we have to believe you never know what happens tomorrow, but if a person says he, he, is, he has realised he did something wrong and he says sorry and he wants to improve, I feel we should give him a chance. He isn't the only one whose mind has been changed. This is Shrimpton herself being interviewed by Today FM morning host Tova O'Brien. I think the one thing I want from this is I, I really hope this has the power to change people's opinions. I changed my opinion. Change opinion, change policy, change Oranga Tamariki and ultimately I really hope that it changes the course of these kids' lives and their futures. I really, really, really hope it does and I just implore people to, to watch because like I said my view's completely changed. We want to see those kids become the mechanics and the doctors that they, that that they, they want to be. Of. 100%. It's worth getting an accurate picture of our youth crime stats, but as it turns out, there's nothing that changes your perspective like hearing from some of the people behind the numbers. Hayden Donnell there looking at recent coverage of youth offending, some of the stats on that, and reporters putting it into context.
Major parties are neck and neck in the race to next year's election, according to the latest One News Cantar public poll. The results come after National Sam Uffendale saga, Labour's issues with Gaudav Sharma and the Prime Minister's trips to London and New York. That was TVNZ's John Campbell on One News last Tuesday, noting the possibility of a bounce for the Prime Minister in their first political poll for a couple of months, thanks to her exposure on the world stage lately. She's been seen in the news alongside other Prime Ministers and Presidents, mourning the Queen, talking free trade in London and big tech in New York. Jacinda Ardern touches down at the United Nations and is taking on the big tech companies again. And that was a reference to the meetings in New York on the Christchurch call, the international push backed by Jacinda Ardern to push back against online extremism. After a summit with French President Emmanuel Macron, the pair launched an initiative with Microsoft and Twitter to research social media's secret algorithms. I think it's very hard to, for governments to say that they're going to step in and regulate something that is so poorly understood. And while the Christchurch call was launched in Paris two years ago with a hiss and a roar, the latest developments last week didn't make many headlines at all. As NewsHub's Amelia Wade went on to report from New York last week, Meta, the owner of Facebook, Instagram and WhatsApp, and Google, which owns YouTube, and TikTok's Chinese parent company ByteDance were all not taking part in that research into the impact of the social media algorithms. And the fast-growing platforms most likely to host the sort of propaganda and misinformation that plays a role in radicalising people on the fringes, like Rumble or the Russia-based messaging app Telegram, were never part of the plan in the first place. So can you actually expect to have any real impact with this if they're not involved? All these players are more and more aware that the current system is no more sustainable. Now in response to some international angst about the impact of algorithms and transparency lately, Facebook's parent company Meta arranged an online briefing for some journalists this week with Meta's policy and strategy executive Andy O'Connell who was visiting New Zealand. Now this was just for background to tell us how Meta moderates and monitors content already and the initiatives they support globally and here in New Zealand to that end and also how the company submits itself to scrutiny such as having its community standards enforcement reporting audited externally. MediaWatch also asked for an on-the-record interview with Andy O'Connell about all of this, but no luck so far. One platform that has engaged with the Christchurch call is Twitter. Its boss, Jack Dorsey, personally played a part in the early stages in 2020, but his critics say that the platform hasn't done much to live up to the call's commitments since then. And watching on with interest is a former colleague of Dorsey's, Evan Henschel-Plath. Now, he's a social media innovator who helped create a small social platform in the mid-2000s called Odeo, which later morphed into Twitter in 2006. Well, the rest, as they say, is history. Twitter went on to corner the market in microblogging, and Evan Henshaw-Plath is living in Wellington as an Edmund Hillary Fellow, working on social media platforms that can't grow to the scale of Twitter, Facebook or TikTok, or do the kind of harm that the huge global platforms are now in the gun for. I, I think that we need to be thinking about what, it, what is and isn't appropriate behaviour on social media. In particular, I think we need to be thinking about the ways in which algorithms and paths towards engagement drive people to different things. So it is fine if there are there is some Nazi propaganda on the internet. If it's not in a place that can easily be an on-ramp to recruit people to, to see that. So if you want to know about what 
the Nazis thought in the 1930s and 40s, it's fine to read about that. If you want to see a whole bunch of disinformation that's about recruiting people, where you take them from, you know, one video to the next video to the next video to the next video to all of a sudden they're watching things that are white supremacist. And this is what the algorithm can do. This is what the algorithm does. And so it's not about controlling exactly what information is available. It's about understanding the way engagement works and how people are going through it. And government regulation is tricky because these things move really fast. They're really confusing. It's complicated. It's easy to get the regulation wrong. But the regulation is the only thing that's going to change the behavior of these corporations. And those algorithms are private property, right? They're the IP of these, some of the biggest companies in the world. And the algorithms are, are private property. They're considered trade secrets. Um, but that doesn't have to be that way. There's a whole academic research area into algorithmic transparency. And there's a whole bunch of, of movements, including something called the Algorithmic Justice League, where people are saying, look, we need to be able to see what these algorithms say. We need to know how they're designed, and we need to be able to compare them. Planetary. It's not a Marvel movie, then. Yes. No, okay. <laughs> and in Planetary, the app, you can actually go and choose what algorithms you want to use. If you're a programmer, you could actually see how we implement the algorithms. And if you want a different one to exist, we invite you to contribute to that. And that, I think, is about empowering users so they get algorithms what they want and not what the platforms want. So this latest initiative for the Christchurch Callers Research Project, backed by uh, New Zealand, Twitter, Microsoft, have backed it, investigating the algorithms. Is this, is this going to help? Is this what, what it... There's, you know, Facebook has put a bunch of funding, ironically enough, into privacy research. Like, we're using in Planetary a bunch of research that's been funded at, through Oxford by Facebook. What we need to do is be realize that it's not a just do the research. It's not just know what the right thing to do is. We need to set up an environment where these companies have the economic incentives to do better. But at the moment, fascinatingly, uh, we have TikTok, this huge, fast-growing platform. We read and hear that Facebook and Instagram are being rejigged with AI in order to compete with it, to be more like it. Just as far as from a news media perspective, kind of interesting because... You know, a few years back, news media were told, you know, pivot to video is the thing because of the popularity of Facebook and turned out to be not a very good move for news media to do that. Now, Facebook is saying, actually, it's this short form video, this giant dump of video that TikTok serves up to people that is the thing people want and that they're trying to uh, piggyback off? I don't know if you're aware of this, but Facebook actually lied about all the viewer numbers that they were providing to these media organizations. They said, go to video because they saw more engagement numbers and people spending more time on Facebook. And they actually produced fake engagement numbers and fake viewership numbers to all these media companies and got them to switch to doing video mm -hmm. when it wasn't even the thing that was, and they knew it wasn't the thing that was engaging with it. And so now they're saying video, this passive consumption where you get this feed. And this is the thing I was talking about where they like, it doesn't make people happier. It doesn't make them more satisfied. It doesn't help your mental health to be given this constant stream of content. It's fun. I watch it, you know, but it's also problematic. Mm, for sure. So when Mark Zuckerberg announced uh, the metaverse unveiled it. He kind of mocked a bit for the way 
that it was done. Uh, it looked very cartoonish. However... No one know, has legs. No, right. <laughs> well, you know, the Avatar business and all of that. But um, it looked a bit trivial. Uh, and uh, the, the way it was done was certainly, um, you know, made him a target for mockery. But, you know, companies are taking this seriously, businesses. But do you think, in the end, people really do want to be even more immersed in their digital social networks than they already are? So I think Facebook's metaverse is unlikely to be successful. But if you look at where young people are spending their time, it's in all these immersive video game worlds. <clears throat> There's a tremendous amount of fantasy worlds. And, it, and it's not... It's actually better than a previous generation of video games because it is intensely social. You are playing with other people, even if you're running around with virtual guns trying to shoot them. Mm -hmm. You're still in a team. You're still talking to each other. And so the metaverse exists today, but it's not the thing Facebook created. It's the thing that the video game world created. I don't, like, what we don't see, and we may not see for quite a long time, is that that's the place you go for a work meeting. Right. That's the place you go stuff. Maybe with augmented reality, we're going to see more of that type stuff. But if if the experience is more immersive, more intense, if those same powerful algorithms that drive people towards content that might not be good for them in all sorts of ways, uh, that combined with the intensity of more immersive experiences, is that a combination to worry about? We We always worry about emerging media. You can find... Uh, essays talking about how dangerous the novel is <laughs> because the printed novel is getting people, keeping them inside, and they're no longer being able to concentrate on going outside and talking to people because they're distracted by reading the novel. And you saw the same thing with the telephone and the radio and television and newspapers and web and email and social media. We always have these concerns. We yeah. always have these concerns as society starts to transform. And what we have now is fundamentally different. Hitler and Stalin could, and Mussolini couldn't come to power without the radio. We couldn't have that kind of uni unified totalitarian authoritarian state without the radio. So what we get with metaverse, augmented reality, virtual reality, uh, immersive worlds is going to empower different cultural, social, political, and economic forms and, by definition, transform society. But we don't know where it's going to transform. But if you have like leaders like Duterte in the Philippines, for example, who mobilized a whole lot of, you know, trolls, digital operatives, you know, to, to give a hard time to opponents, as well as in real life to cement his power, having even more powerful digital tools that prove popular uh, with people, that is something to that is something that we need to be wary of? Sure. Yeah. Absolutely. Bolisario had a whole, in Brazil, had a whole network of people who would uh, take these fake memes and fake stories and spread them through a network of WhatsApp groups. But it's important to remember that, for example... Ten years ago, trans people were all in the closet. What they were able to do is see themselves represented in social media, where the media before that 
never gave them a voice and never let them represent themselves. And then once they saw each other represented, were able to come out of the closet. You know, we see these authoritarian governments, we see what's going on, what Trump wants to do, we see what goes on in Hungary, what goes in the Philippines and Brazil, and those are all problems. The, the, what makes a viable democratic society is going to shift, and it's important to defend that. And it's important to realize that the space of contestation is in these digital spaces. What we build in social media spaces, what we go to online, is a digital reflection of the cities we live in. And this is what I talked about six years ago when I was here. It was like, there are neighborhoods. You go to different communities online and you see different kinds of people with different kinds of norms and you can do different things based on what the app does in those spaces. What we need to do is look at which spaces and which activities encourage this kind of authoritarian strong leader behavior. Encourage this kind of strong in-group, out-group behavior that causes kinds of hate. Uh, recruits, uh, especially sort of alienated young men who don't feel like they have community. I think we're in a moment where we have the opportunity to design these systems again and build these systems again. And so to me, it's a very exciting moment when we see something like Facebook finally dying, and Facebook is dying, Instagram, WhatsApp, Oculus are surviving, that when these dominant platforms go away, then there's space for new things to be created. And we can decide what those things are and what the values behind them are and what kind of society we want them to uh, help us bring forward. And so... That, to me, is the exciting moment is we're, we're able to do that. And, you know, I feel incredibly lucky that I was able to move here to Aotearoa, New Zealand, and but do the you, work here. If you want to have an influence on the way social media is developing and it's headquartered in Silicon Valley and other places in the United States, isn't that a pretty weird place to try and do it from Wellington? Or just does that not matter in the digital era? We, up until the start of the pandemic, I had an office in San Francisco. Um, I shared it with Signal, which is the, the encrypted private messaging thing. Uh, and uh, we all gave up our offices. The way and the weight at which San Francisco was the center of this has dissipated because of the pandemic, and it's not come back. So no, no drama being in Wellington? No, no one has any idea. Other than, other than the, the, they notice the weird time zones of when I'm available to do calls online. <laughs> yeah, that's true. You can't change the clock. Yeah. That was Evan Henshaw-Plath, former founder of the social network Odeo, which was a forerunner of Twitter, and he's a former colleague of Twitter's current boss, Jack Dorsey. Now, Evan's also the CEO of tech platform Planetary, which is working to decentralise social media and break down the epic scale and power of some of the biggest platforms. And he's doing that from right here in New Zealand, where he's now an Edmund Hillary Fellow. And on Media Watch next weekend, we'll hear more from him about that. We'll be back with more on the media also at about 10.30 next Wednesday night with Midweek Media Watch talking to Karen Hay on The Lately Show and then back again at the same time next weekend on Media Watch here on RNZ National.